Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Also, all advertisements and podcast sponsors are strictly for informational purposes only and not endorsements of any products or services. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast, and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. I want to give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have on Rhea, who's a director of research at Fidelity Digital Assets to discuss her article on the omnibus model for custody. Rhea, how's it going? Hey Tom, I'm good. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, of course. We've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm glad we're (laughs) finally here. We made it. We did. We did. So Rhea, for those who don't know you, which would be kind of impossible, give give your brief intro. Sure. So I, um, I work at Fidelity Digital Assets. And just to give you a brief overview of how I got here, I actually, similar to you, started my career as an equity research analyst where I, I did research on fintech and payments companies like Square and PayPal. And when Square rolled out Bitcoin buying and selling via the Cash App, my senior analyst and I actually wrote a report on Bitcoin and blockchain And that got some really good feedback from our institutional clients. So as a result, we did a few more events with different crypto companies. And separately, I was doing my own research on the space. And I realized that there was a big gap in um, institutional education and research on the space that was really waiting to be filled. And I realized that if in order to fill it, I had to be in the space full time. So... It was at that point that I started looking for opportunities and I met Circle and I found out that they had the same goal in mind. So I joined them in early 2018 to build out Circle Research, which was basically to help us emerge as a thought leader on the space, as well as to publish research and content for our retail and institutional clients. And then I joined Fidelity about four months ago because I thought it was the perfect opportunity to marry the time that I had spent with traditional institutional clients at Credit Suisse with the training and knowledge that I gained working at a pure crypto company to to help institutions navigate this asset class and and help them separate uh, what's real from what's not. Humble as ever, Rhea. I think everybody knows how good your posts were at Circle and now Fidelity, I think, kind of like the go-to on a lot of these topics. So it's great to have you to discuss your recent post. So I guess before we kind of dive into history here of the model, what was the genesis for writing on this specific topic? 
Yeah, sure. So I think this topic is relatively uncovered in the space. You know, these words are thrown around and it just comes off as jargon and it's difficult to determine what's true from what's not. And obviously this is something, you know, as a custodian in the space, uh, Fidelity wants to help clarify the differences between different models, the merits of different models uh, for storing assets and help kind of bridge that knowledge gap. So we started getting a lot of questions from our clients actually about the omnibus model and that kind of led me to say, hey, why don't I do a post on it? So that was the genesis. That's awesome. And the history is really exciting. I want to get into that, but just so we don't confuse anybody, can you just give like the simple explanation on what exactly the omnibus model is? Yeah, sure. So in like really high level, simple terms, it means um, when assets of multiple parties are essentially combined and service providers that use omnibus accounts establish segregation between different clients on the books and records level. Got it. Okay. That, that makes sense. And basically your post kind of goes into the history of it and it's kind of like the standard for traditional finance markets, right? Going all the way back to like before the DTC was established. Yeah, totally. So the DTC was actually the genesis of this model. So I can, if it's helpful, kind of give you some background around what led to the creation of the DTC and this model. Yeah, please. I, I mean, the please go into this paperwork crisis too, because when I read the post, it was just that was one of the most interesting parts for sure. Yeah, that reading and learning about that was really fascinating, and I can't believe that <laughs> the financial system relied on such an inefficient process, basically up until the 1970s. So, to give you like a high level overview, um, in the 1960s, households in America pretty much started increasing um, their investment in publicly owned companies. So as a, and then as a result of that, and then there was a bull market between 19, I think 1962 and 1968. So that led to a significant uptick in uh, trading volume on stock exchanges in America. So it got to a point that I think volumes rose from like 3 million at the beginning of the decade to about 20 million, as high as 20 million at the end of the decade. And the volume just exploded so much so quickly that brokers and transfer agents couldn't figure out like how to move certificates and checks fast enough um, from one uh, institution to the other. So the way that a trade took place back in the day was security issuer would issue a paper certificate. And in order to transfer ownership from a one party to the other, the paper certificate had to be delivered from one party to the other. So that's kind of what led to the buildup of paperwork and um, and just just back office work. And at that time, there was also no concept of netting. So two firms that may have been tra- transacting with each other multiple times per day had careers running back and forth for each and every transaction. And that resulted in like significant backlogs and fails to deliver. So thousands of transactions actually ended up remaining unsettled. And because these certificates were paper-based, they were easily lost or st- and stolen um, despite the significant amount of human capital that was devoted to transfer uh, and rec- reconciliation. Jesus, I, I just can't imagine having that much paper going around and it literally, I, in your post, you say they literally had to close 
operations on Wednesdays just so the back offices could, you know, catch up with all the paperwork. Right. Like they shortened the trading days. They closed one day of the week. Transactions that were supposed to be settled in T plus five ended up taking weeks to settle. And there was just a significant amount, I think like between 1967 1970 or some three-year period towards the end of the decade, there were like $400 million worth of lost and stolen securities. Um, so it was hugely inefficient. And if if what resulted from it was actually the formation of the DTC, but honestly, if the DTC hadn't been formed, this could have led to a really significant crisis. So if you want, I could kind of go into what the DTC is and how it came to be. Yeah, please do. I, and I, I'm I think I'm just as shocked as everyone else on how inefficient the pass was, but definitely please go into the the DTC. Sure. So around this time, a bunch of Wall Street CEOs pretty much came together um, to form a committee that was tasked with finding a solution to this paperwork crisis. And what they realized was that they could leverage a department within the New York Stock Exchange that brokers had uh, started to use as a kind of de facto vault. And this department was called... um, the central security or central certificate service. And what these group of CEOs decided was they said, let's spin this out of the New York Stock Exchange and become uh, and help it become a private user owned cooperative, um, which eventually became the DTC. So since then, the DTC has become regulated by the SEC, uh, the New York DFS, and the Fed. And it's essentially the custodian of large financial institutions, and it custodies securities such as equities, ETFs, corporate and municipal bonds, and money market instruments. And a core, core component of the DTC is its omnibus model for accounting for assets. That's super interesting. So I guess, how does the omnibus model work within the DTC? Like, I guess, how does the day-to-day work? Because in the past, you talked about how these brokers would have to literally move paper back and forth, and obviously there's a buildup, but how does the omnibus model work within the DTC? Yeah, sure. So since the 1970s, the paper certificates have become either dematerialized. What dematerialized means is um, that the actual physical certificates are all held at the DTC, and no longer do you need to um, to transfer the certificate from one party to another in order to uh, designate a change in ownership. So now what happens is rather than a physical transfer, it's an electronic transfer of ownership. And the way the DTC is structured right now is there's a part of it called Seed & Co., which is essentially a nominee that holds the securities on the books of the securities issuers. So if you were to look at like the cap table, then Seed & Co. would appear as the owner of pretty much all of their stocks. And then the DTC establishes segregation by DTC participants on its books and records. And as I I don't know if I mentioned this, but participants include like custodians, banks, uh, broker dealers. And then one more level down, these DTC participants establish segregation by their end clients. So essentially the beneficiaries of the securities on their books and records. Wow. Okay. So just to sum up, I mean, basically at the end of the day, since ownership is kind of maintained at the DTC, kind of on a books and records level, they're able to 
basically significantly add efficiency gains because there's no like risk or errors, loss or theft, anything like that. And then that brings the transaction settlement time way down to like, you know, T plus two or something. Yeah, exactly. It went from T plus five to T plus three to eventually T plus two. And, you know, this, the, the DTC system has been in place since the 1970s and I don't think much has changed. So it does have its limitations, but relative to the way that things worked in the past, it's a massive improvement. It sounds like it. Yeah. I I don't think people really, I think people just kind of generalize that, Hey, the internet came around. So everything got more efficient when in reality it was a mix of the internet and this new omnibus model. Yes, totally. So I guess extending that to digital assets, where does the omnibus model come into play here? Cause it's kind of, we're kind of like in this new realm here where we have custodians and depositories, but it's kind of like the same thing at the end of the day in crypto. Yeah. And I think there are definitely differences in the rationale for applying omnibus to digital assets as well. But to give you like a overview of how it's applied to digital assets, custodians that use this omnibus model essentially combine client assets and then distribute them across a number of key pairs in different storage environments. So to break down key pairs, just to level set for the audience, the ownership of a digital asset is signified by a private key that has a corresponding public key. And then storage environments essentially refers to online or hot storage and then offline or cold storage. And then, you know, obviously, if you're using a third party service provider, the aim is to limit the exposure of assets to online hot storage. Got it. So when people think about custodians as like giant honeypots, that's kind of not realistic with this model, right? Because the custodian is splitting ownership or not ownership, but where they keep the assets among multiple different accounts. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think. You know, one one point that I wanted to get across in this piece is that when people hear the term omnibus, you know, they think about it in the context of the DTC, which is, you know, a single institution that holds asset in a single location. But the way it works for digital assets is that, um, at least in terms of best practices, it's digital asset custodians that use this model are probably determining what the best distribution is of these assets across multiple master key pairs and um, across different storage environments. Got it. So you give an example in the report where a custodian has like a hundred or 2 billion in assets and they split it up into hundred million dollar chunks over 20 years. So, I mean, it sounds great that you're kind of diversifying the risk, but doesn't that mean that now they're just more liable for more key pairs? I mean, or... Yeah, I think that there is definitely a threshold to be determined of, you know, what's the right balance of having too many key pairs and then having too many assets within a single key pair. And obviously it's up to uh, each and every custodian to determine what the right balance is. That's fair enough. But it I definitely helps because I see so many tweets and people in crypto saying that custodians are just massive honeypots when in reality, the only honeypot is potentially one key pair, which only has some subset of assets in it. Exactly. So yeah, whatever you can do to limit, limit the risk and limit exposure. 
No, that's that's totally fair. And then the other point you mentioned in your report is on liquidity and how the omnibus model really helps there. Could you kind of go into your example there and, and why this model helps with liquidity? Yeah, sure. So uh, as you mentioned, it it really helps maximize the portion of funds that that custodians can keep in offline cold storage, but also um, maintain ample liquidity to meet withdrawal needs that clients may have. Um, so this is a really highly simplified example, but just to demonstrate the point, consider like a scenario where a custodian has a segregated model and they have 20 clients with $50,000 in assets. And each client that has a segregated key pair group with 2%, let's say these are the risk parameters of the custodian, 2% in online and then 98% in offline. So that would equate to $1,000 per client in hot online storage and then $49,000 in um, offline storage. Now, let's say that three customers come to this custodian that uses a segregated model and say, hey, we want to withdraw $5,000 each. So given the segregated structure, the custodian, like the total assets that it has in online storage is $20,000 and the withdrawal demand is $15,000. But because it's segregated, they can't dip into, or they can't use the funds in online storage of other clients to meet these withdrawal needs. So they would have to essentially execute three separate transactions from cold offline storage to hot online storage and then to the client in order to um, in order to meet this withdrawal demand. And it's, this is the, the movement of funds from offline cold storage to hot storage is typically a very involved process and, and requires, um, requires the custodian to coordinate people and places. So it's essentially a much more complex process. Now, on the other hand, consider a custodian that has an omnibus model and then the same risk parameters. So 2% of assets in online and 98% in offline. And they receive the same instructions from these three clients to withdraw $5,000 per client. The custodian would be able to use the full 20K that it has in online hot storage, even if it's distributed across multiple key pairs to meet these demands. So it would reduce... Um, the coordination and transactions that go into meeting this withdrawal demand. It sounds way more efficient under the omnibus model. I mean, how does that relate to the actual custodians though? Like as a consumer or as a fund using a custodian, do I actually, are the fund or the custodians actually providing faster liquidity for me? Or is it something that might be negligible? I'm just wondering if different custodians using either method actually have like readily available advantages for their clients here? Yeah, I think, you know, it would be a benefit for the end client in in that they could get access to their funds in a more timely manner. And then for the custodian in reducing um, the costs on their side. And essentially these are costs that they can pass on to um, to end clients. Got it. No, that that's helpful. And then yeah, it just makes a lot more sense from their perspective. I mean, did you go into or did you look around at the custodians today? Like, are most using this omnibus model or is it kind of hard to tell from the outside? 
I think it's hard to tell on the outside. It depends on whether they have that term <laughs> in their marketing material online. Yeah. But uh, from what I've seen, I think a good portion of custodians use the omnibus model. That's fair. And I mean, you guys at Fidelity Digital Assets, are you guys using this model? I'm assuming you guys probably are. Yeah. So we, we do use the omnibus model. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. And Rhea, the last two points you hit on are transaction fees and privacy. It sounds like using the omnibus model gives you more flexibility for managing fees. How exactly does that come into play here? Yeah, sure. So I think that plays nicely with the previous example where there's uh, fewer transactions that custodians have to execute to meet these needs. And then the other part of it is because the custodian is essentially determining what transactions to execute, they cover the transaction fees that they have to pay to miners essentially on chain to meet these withdrawal demands. And then, yeah. And then the last point is because each client doesn't have like a master key pair associated with them, there's enhanced privacy because essentially it's the custody custody provider that appears as the owner of the master key pair. Hey everyone, we'll continue this conversation shortly, but first a quick word from our amazing sponsors. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets, but don't know where to start building your portfolio? We have the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy to use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at b.tc slash eToro reaction, linked in the show notes below. Okay, so all, all your points make a ton of sense. It just, I mean, the model's just so much more efficient. And to be honest, I don't know if a lot of people in crypto understand like the efficiency gains for custodians and the risk management benefits and the security because I feel like everybody just assumes that, you know, it's either we all we all own our own key pairs or we're using this custodian, they kind of have it figured out already. Yeah, so that's exactly right. You know, this piece is intended to comment on you know, if you choose a third-party custodian or a third-party service provider, just investigate, you know, what model are they using? You know, what are the exact specifics of the model? Because even if it's segregated or omnibus, the devil is in the details. So it's more to educate, you know, what they're using, what the details are, how they manage risk, and so on. No, that that's fair. And the other thing you mentioned, which is kind of interesting, is the proof of solvency for custodians. I know Kraken did this a while back. I think, yeah, you mentioned it in your post how they did kind of a one-time proof of solvency to kind of prove that the Bitcoin they had uh, matched kind of what they said they had. Is that, how does that come into play? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is more of a looking forward, you know, where I think the industry could eventually get to um, if we continue kind of working on the proof of solvency processes. But in response to the Mt. Gox hack, I think, you know, the, the whole fiasco, um, proof of solvency became like came to the forefront and people started saying, you know, if you're using a third party exchange or custodian, make sure that they actually have the funds they say they have. So 
a proof of solvency essentially consists of comparing a proof of reserve, which is funds that the service provider actually holds and controls, to a proof of liability, which is funds that the third party owes to uh, its clients. And because we have access to, you know, transparent, auditable, in real time blockchain technology, the idea is we should eventually get to a point where we can, you know, the industry, it becomes an industry standard to publish a proof of solvency on a regular basis. And, and it becomes something that differentiates service providers. Yeah. I know Nick Carter has been pushing for it for a while. I, I think he kind of tweets that it, it might not happen or, you know, cynically, like he wants it to happen, but I don't think these exchanges are actually going to do it, you know? Yeah. I think, I think a huge part of it also depends on demand from the end customers for this kind of uh, audit uh, and service. So I think a lot of it will come down to that. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, this is an excellent post and it's kind of on like really legitimate financial infrastructure that's built in the space. And this is totally different than what we had five or 10 years ago in the space. I mean, is it kind of funny to you kind of researching this stuff and, you know, realizing that, you know, real financial infrastructure is being built out here when in the past it was kind of just, you know, Wall Street's never going to embrace crypto. And, and here we are with, you know, major firms kind of building out new tech here. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. And, and like major firms, like taking the time to really understand what are the nuances of custodying digital assets? How is it similar or different to custodying traditional assets or providing services around traditional assets? And that just makes me really excited about the future of this space. Yeah, same here. And Rhea, I'd be remiss not to mention your other report that came out too, the report on the 2019 Bitcoin retrospective, which came out a week or two prior. I don't know how you pump out content like this, but... <laughs> It's uh, it's amazing. So, I mean, you kind of went into the whole, you know, 2019 history of everything that happened on Bitcoin, which is an excellent read. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. What was your kind of high level takeaway at the end of the report, like, you know, on the health of Bitcoin, on its advancement over the course of the year? Yeah, I think it's easy to get lost in the day to day. And we're so used to seeing like constant news flow and announcements that you know, it, it really takes st- taking a step back to realize how much progress we've actually made. So, you know, in that report, I kind of divided it into two different sections. So developments around infrastructure and adoption, and then uh, like key on-chain performance indicators. And like the really high level takeaways was there's been a significant expansion of trading volume on U.S. regulated derivatives platforms and then also announcements to introduce new types of derivatives beyond futures and, and products just tied to the price of Bitcoin. A couple other insi- exciting developments was just growing institutional adoption as shown um, by investment in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is the only security that allows investors to get exposure to Bitcoin through traditional brokerage and retirement platforms alongside other securities. And then on the flip side, you know, retail adoption continued to increase as well. And one metric that the industry looks to is, is how Bitcoin sales are progressing on Square's cash app. Um, so I think, you know, the last results that Square posted was in the third quarter of 2019. And 
Bitcoin sales were as high as a uh, hundred, like I think almost 150 million in the quarter. Um, so these were all really exciting developments. And not only that, uh, you know, speaking of Square, just Jack Dorsey's push uh, into the space and in supporting the space through his announcement of Square Crypto, which this week announced like a lightning development kit and Square Crypto's grants that it issued to, you know, open source non-custodial projects in the space. So, you know, there are a lot of developments that show that there are institutions, both traditional and crypto, that really uh, are embracing the staying power of of this space. And there are people that are using these platforms that also believe that that digital assets has a long future ahead. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it just seems that there's so much progress on the finance side of Bitcoin, derivatives, custodians, and everything on that side. But also the dev activity is pretty solid and the mining activity is solid. I mean, the hash rate is way up um, over the past couple of years. I guess the yeah. other question for you is like on the community itself. Like, did you... Um, or, or what's your kind of view on the progression of Bitcoin's core community itself? Uh, what do you mean? Like in what sense? I guess just from a development perspective. I mean, it sounds like from Jack Dorsey's sense, like he's pushing a lot of dev activity. I mean, he's investing across the board. Core developers are rolling out new things like Taproot. I think that just got had a pull request uh, today or a couple of days ago. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing with Bitcoin is that it takes... Uh, there's a lot of development on the port core protocol with things like Schnorr, Taproot, uh, Tapscript, which are essentially ways to improve privacy on the, the core Bitcoin layer, as well as add more smart contracting functionality. And then there's also significant, significant development happening on layer two protocols like Lightning Network, which made significant progress. And I don't have the exact metrics on the top of my off the top of my head, but there's a lot of development activity there. Um, and, and Jack Dorsey's push into supporting Lightning Network is also huge. So I think there's a lot of development going on. And a lot of it is just like seemingly small improvements, but in aggregate, I think it's it's, it's making the entire ecosystem more robust and stronger. No, for sure. That's that's a good way to put it. And the other question for you is that, I mean, you're at one of the largest firms, financial firms in the world. I think people in crypto kind of forget how large Fidelity is. What's your take on institutions warming up to Bitcoin, warming up to crypto? Do you think that it's going as fast as expected or slower? Or do you think that now we have the tools to kind of have that kind of hockey stick style approach and growth. Just wondering kind of your take internally, um, considering where you are. Yeah, definitely. I think that institutional interest in the space is just continuing to grow more and more every day. Um, you know, it's initially, I would say it's shifted from being more crypto focused to being more balanced, balanced between like crypto focused institutions to, uh, traditional institutions that are interested in learning about and maybe even eventually making an allocation to the space. You know, our, our BD team and myself have multiple conversations with these uh, traditional financial institutions. And, and the questions that they're asking are definitely more advanced. It seems like they have a really strong grasp on the space and 
believe in it, but I think the inflow of institutions will be more gradual because it takes time to develop a thesis on the space, on the space, determine what's the best way to include it in a strategy and so on. Yeah, no, I always, I always joke with people. Like I wish that in crypto, we had the models we used on wall street. We had these, you know, DCFs or cookie cutter approaches we could apply to crypto assets. And I know we all kind of left wall street, you know, for various reasons, but sometimes I wish we had those tools that we had in the past. Yeah, I know it would definitely make the process of convincing people on the staying power of this space easier, but I think we'll get there. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited. Is there anything you're looking forward to in 2020, Ria? I know everybody's been sharing their predictions around and you know, some of them are all over the place. We've had some people on to discuss kind of what they're looking forward to. I guess I'm just wondering on your end, like what are the most exciting things you're looking for going into 2020 for Fidelity Digital Assets or, or Bitcoin itself? Yeah, I think, you know, from an infrastructure point of view, I expect the the kinds of services that institutions are or and service providers are offering to extend beyond the core custody and trading to more advanced uh, and comprehensive services that that institutions have come to expect in traditional asset classes. And I think that will definitely help attract more institutions to the space. And then just the growing body of research and education and work that's being done on Bitcoin and the entire digital asset space at large is really exciting and encouraging to me. Like I think if we looked just just one year ago, uh, the the number of research analysts in this space has grown exponentially. So I'm excited to be a part of that growing community and and just continuing to you know, fight the good fight. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it definitely is a good fight. And the other side of things, you know, kind of delving a little on the other end of the spectrum from more of the institutional stuff is like DeFi's obviously had explosive growth. We have really cool projects, MakerDAO, Synthetics, the like. Do you think that institutional type clients that you speak to or you deal with, are they interested in DeFi or do you think it's more of like a niche kind of crypto use case right now? Um. I would say that there are a lot of institute. I, I guess it depends from person to person and how deep they are into the space. There are people that I've talked to at traditional incumbent institutions that are so deep into the space and really are excited about just what's going on in DeFi and just beyond Bitcoin and the different smart protocol, smart contract protocols. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there are still people that are still trying to develop a thesis around Bitcoin and that's going to take some time before they even start focusing on some of the deeper, more niche projects. Yeah, no, it's, that's for sure. I mean, a lot of our clients that we deal with are, are kind of the same way. Like they're interested in the tech, but maybe don't completely understand it, but want to, and everything goes back to Bitcoin and it's always back and forth between uh, interest levels on, on the various topics. Yeah, exactly. It, it It's also like, oh, what's actually investable right now versus what, what piques my personal interest? Um, and will I can, I'll continue to keep a pulse on it personally, you know, until it gets big enough and mature enough for me to actually make some kind of investment decision around it. No, for sure. And Rhea, my last set of questions for you, you know, you spend all day researching crypto. I mean, you did it at Circle, you're doing it now at Fidelity. You did it in your past life at Equity Research. How have your views changed on the space? Like, 
Do you have any views that you think maybe you held pretty strongly when you got started that changed? Or do you think that anything's new come up? I'm just kind of wondering, you know, the strong views or, or other views that have changed for somebody who spends so much time researching the space on a daily basis. Yeah, sure. So I think when I started off, I was attracted to Bitcoin because of the payments use case. And then the more time that you spend in the space and just learning about it, the more you realize that it's so much more than that, um, that it's an entirely new currency value transfer system, value storage system. Um, So I think that has definitely changed the more that I learn about it. And then I think I went through a period where I was excited about Bitcoin and then I was excited about like, I kind of shifted my focus to everything else that was going on outside of Bitcoin. And then I feel like I've come back to Bitcoin and just realized that there's so much more to learn about this, this asset uh, that I haven't even scratched the surface. So it, it's come in waves. Uh, definitely doesn't. How has the reception been within the broader fidelity kind of ecosystem to your work and your research? Like, are people interested or is this something that's kind of still on the shelf for a lot of people? I'm just kind of wondering because it would be great to hear kind of the reaction of normal finance people at Fidelity and what they think of the space too. Yeah, I think that there is a growing interest. You know, Fidelity Digital Assets isn't the only digital asset initiative that we have. We have a lot of projects that we're working on internally within the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology um, and Fidelity Labs that are related to digital assets. So, you know, I think more and more both these departments are growing. We've had a lot of people from the traditional side of Fidelity that are excited about this space and have decided to make the transition from traditional finance to focusing on digital assets. So I think that is a huge indicator in itself that there is growing interest even within Fidelity, which is massive, massive institution to, to get involved in this space. Yeah. I don't think people realize how much you guys actually do across all your lines. Like I, I remember reading that you Fidelity digital assets or Fidelity, I wasn't sure has, has been mining Bitcoin for the past five or six years. And I was just shocked. Yeah. So that, you know, we Fidelity Center for Applied Technology and Fidelity Labs have been doing research on this space for a long time. And it, started with mining Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin ourselves and uh, understanding the pain points of holding Bitcoin. We even tested a use case where um, we allowed our employees to pay with Bitcoin in the company cafeteria to understand Bitcoin as a payments use case. Um, And there's just so much work going on exploring the different ways that we can contribute to the ecosystem. I love that. That's that's excellent to hear. So, Rhea, it's been incredible having you on. Did I did I forget any pertinent questions to ask on your reports? Or are we uh, all good? I think we covered a lot. Yeah, this was awesome. We definitely did, Rhea. It's excellent having you on. I can't wait to get two more reports from you in two weeks at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I need to I need to manage expectations. Yeah, right. uh, you're going to have to write a uh, you know 104 papers this year. So <laughs> might as well get started. There's so much to write about. I don't even know where to start, but yeah, this is an awesome. It's, it's, it takes just as long to figure out what to write about than it does to write at this point in crypto. Yeah. I feel like I start writing something and then I have FOMO and I'm like, oh my God, I should be writing about this other thing instead. Um, But it's awesome. It's such a great spot to be in, to get paid. 
research. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Rhea, it's excellent having you on. Um, for everybody listening, Rhea's two posts will be linked to the show notes. Uh, shoot Rhea follow. Follow Fidelity Digital Assets because if, if you don't realize how big they are, they're moving the space forward. And Rhea, again, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Tom. This was awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.